0: Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Sarah Ann Minken, Director of Programs and Partnerships for the Foundation. Today is August 16th, 2022, and I am delighted to be here with Jihad Abu Salim. Jihad is the Education and Policy Coordinator of the Palestine Activism Program at the American Friends Service Committee, AFSC, and he's also a non-resident fellow at FMEP. He's completing his PhD in the History and and Hebrew and Judaic Studies joint program at New York University. Jihad's research focuses on Arab and Palestinian intellectual discourse on Zionism, anti-Semitism, and the plight of the Jewish people in Europe between 1870 and 1948. And you can listen to a conversation that Jihad and I had about his research a few months ago in another episode of Occupied Thoughts. Jihad also studies the social and political history of the Gaza Strip, focusing on the continuing impact of the Nakba on life in Gaza before and after 1948. His most recent publication is an anthology that he co-edited, released just yesterday by Haymarket Books, entitled Light in Gaza, Writings Born of Fire. You can find a link to that anthology and many other resources we're going to mention in this podcast on the FMEP website, fmep.org. Jihad grew up in Gaza and left about 10 years ago to continue his education in the United States. I wanted to talk to him in the aftermath of Israel's most recent aerial assault on Gaza, three days of bombardment from August 5th through August 8th. We're going to talk about the question of how to talk about Gaza. What are the right frameworks that can help us understand Gaza itself and also what Gaza means and how Gaza fits into visions for freedom, for justice, for human and civil rights for all the inhabitants between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Jihad, thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thanks for having me, Sarah.
0: So before we launch into bigger political questions, let's talk about this most recent assault. Israel said that it launched the attack in order to stop what they called an imminent attack planned by the Gaza-based group, Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Israel said it targeted people associated with Islamic Jihad. During the three days of bombardment, which sparked retaliatory rockets fired by Islamic Jihad, 49 Palestinians in Gaza were killed, including 17 children. Israel has launched aerial wars and campaigns on Gaza for years. In 2008-9, 2012, 2014, last year, May of 2021, and again now, just a week ago, two weeks ago. Will you talk to us please about this most recent assault? What is the same and what's different between this assault and the last one, the last ones? What do we need to know about this most recent campaign in order to understand what's happening in Gaza?
1: Thank you so much for this question, Saran. Again, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Uh, Israel's re- most recent uh, aggression uh, against the Gaza Strip and against the Palestinian people who live there um, was uh, was a continuation of uh, the the policy known as mowing the lawn, according to uh, you know the words of Israeli. Security and, and military uh, leaders, uh, we heard this term a lot, and it 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 was part of Israel's uh, ever continuing uh, colonial violence against Palestinians. Uh, I can talk about the immediate the immediate context. I can talk about the lead up to the aggression, but it is very important to to. Uh, to view this moment as part of uh, the the broader context of daily violence, uh, of occupation, of land seizure, of uh, uh, Israel's continuation to, uh, you know, assault Palestinian freedom and self-determination between the river and the sea. Uh, So it, it is very important to establish that in the beginning. Uh, now, in terms of the, the lead up to this most recent aggression, uh, it all began when Israeli forces uh, conducted a uh, spectacular act of, uh, of arrest in, in daylight of a Palestinian uh, uh, leader uh, who, uh, who is affiliated with the Palestinian Islamic Jihad movement. and in the West Bank. Uh, they did it in, in broad daylight. They they took, you know, a large uh, military force uh, and the, the intention was to provoke a response from the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Following this operation in the West Bank, uh, just a few days before the attack on Gaza, uh, Israel announced uh, that they're taking uh, like uh, preemptive measures in the area they call in Hebrew or in English translates into the Gaza cover, uh, which uh, which refers to um, areas in uh, that that are adjacent to the Gaza Strip but are under Israeli uh, control and where uh, you know uh, Israeli uh, settlements were established after 1948. Um, and and of course in in Palestinian cities that were conquered in 1948, such as uh, Ascalon, Bil Majdal, and other uh, Palestinian towns, um, so they announced uh, they announced emergency measures. They opened the shelters. They they for some reason they were preparing the, the Israeli like population there uh, for uh, for an escalation. In the meantime, Palestinians in Gaza uh, w- were not expecting an, an explosion, and eruption of, uh, uh, of uh, you know, Israeli attacks on the Gaza Strip. In fact, this summer uh, witnessed, perhaps, I don't have numbers, but probably witnessed uh, uh, the highest number of visits by Palestinian, uh, Palestinians from Gaza who live abroad uh, due to, uh, you know, uh, uh certain, uh, changes that took place, uh, at the Rafah crossing, uh, south of Gaza. So a lot of families were visiting the relatives probably for the first time in a decade or so. Uh, you know, people were, uh, thinking about the, the, the economic situation, uh, Barely recovering from the brutal attack in May 2021, which you know, which was devastating for Palestinians in Gaza. Uh, so uh, Israel conducts this arrest campaign in the West Bank, and um, and then you know uh, uh, and creates these emergency conditions in in the Gaza cover uh, region, and then uh, uh, starts cutting the el- electricity and fuel supply to the Gaza Strip, uh, which, you know, uh, Gaza is a very hot and humid place in the summer. So cutting fuel supplies needed for electricity generation or cutting electric, you know, the electric supply to Gaza uh, is something that is uh, incredibly violent because it it, it, you know, it it, it worsens the situation there, which is already bad. You know, like Gaza has a serious, severe electricity and power shortage crisis, um, and and the Israeli the Israeli military was just waiting for the Islamic Jihad to respond. Um, they were talking about you know like the Islamic Jihad responding, but the Islamic Jihad did not respond. The Islamic Jihad did not uh, did not uh, launch any any. Rockets into Israel as a response to the to that very immediate uh, to this immediate like uh, 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 acts that Israel committed, whether in the West Bank or uh, around Gaza. Um, and when the Islamic Jihad did not respond, Israel just launched the attack. Uh, you know, without provocation, without any any you know pretext, just because you know they they felt that. It was the right time for them to uh, to conduct that operation, uh, and because uh, you know they they wanted to achieve certain strategic and tactical objectives that I can talk about. Um, so so yeah, that, that that's that's the general context um, around this aggression. Uh, it was different, so it, it's similar to some of the. Uh, previous moments of when Israel attacked Gaza in some ways, and it's different than some of them. So for example, it's similar to the 2008-2009 attack in the sense that it was a surprise attack. Uh, people did not anticipate it. People did not see it coming. And there was no, um, the, 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 the yes, I mean, the, there was like ceasefire, the ceasefire ended between Israel and Gaza in 2008 and between Israel and the, the, the resistance groups in Gaza. And uh, and of course, you know, but nobody expected uh, a military operation in that scale that we witnessed in 2008. And I was in, in Gaza in 2008. Uh, I vividly remember every single uh, moment of, of, that, of that attack. It was pretty brutal, unprecedented in its scale and the scale of death and destruction. Um, and. Uh, and it and it took Palestinians in Gaza by surprise. Uh, uh, I can I can talk about what it was like to experience that later. Um, now in twenty fourteen, and uh, in twenty in twenty fourteen and in two thousand twenty one, um, there 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 was there there were contexts in 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 uh, in the, you know in the within the broader situation. In historic Palestine, uh, in 2014, there were uh, there was an you know the the Muhammad uh, the killing of Muhammad Abu Khdeir uh, by the, the settlers who you know killed him and set him on fire, uh, which was followed by uh, a uprising in the West Bank and you know parts of Palestine, uh, which led to you know. Uh, 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 a series of events that culminated in uh, in the attack on Gaza in 2014. In, in May 2021, uh, we, you know, things uh, started in Sheikh Jarrah, and then you know, we all saw the, the Israeli attacks on the worshippers at Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, there was uh, a sense of uh, public mobilization in the Palestinian street, uh, and, a, and, a, and a growing sense of solidarity that transcended Israel's walls and fences. Uh, people united around, you know, the advocating against Israel's policies, uh, you know, evicting Palestinians from their homes in broad daylight on live television and social media. These scenes were very, were very triggering, were very offensive, uh, attacking worshippers at Al-Aqsa Mosque. So, so there was this general, you know, like sense of, uh, of unity of, you know, like different Palestinian communities are engaged in a, in a, in a, in a, in a battle against Israel in, in various forms, in various ways. And then eventually like it became, you know, uh, politically impossible for the, the groups in Gaza not to engage. And, and, and then the, uh, we saw what happened after that the so like 2008 what happened this this summer uh was was similar to 2008 in the sense that it was like a surprise attack um and you know uh, it it but what was unique about this attack in in this august uh was how uh, how brief the israelis wanted to be they, Israel wanted to achieve their you know, strategic goals, um, target the military leadership of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, uh, and, uh, and target uh, you know, one faction uh, alone in isolation from the rest of the Palestinian factions, um, and uh, you know, achieve certain goals, but within a short period of time, where it's not enough uh, for the Palestinian street to mobilize uh, in order to generate like a uh, national and a transnational response. Uh, it's not enough for the international public, you know, like opinion to, to formulate uh, an understanding, but also a response to what was happening. And also, uh, uh, you know, and, and to basically you know achieve uh, what you know the 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 political and military leaders of Israel uh, considered you know uh, strategic gains through this attack so for for the Israeli military and of course you know for the Israeli government uh, they wanted to uh, to erase the legacy of May 2021. May 2021. Say,
0: say, say, that, say that part. They wanted to erase or erase? erase, 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 erase the legacy, the of, legacy 20, of May 2021. What, what do you mean?
1: In, in May 2021, uh, for the first time in a long time, Palestinians from all over historic Palestine uh, united in, uh, in their mobilization against Israel. We saw Palestinians in Gaza, uh, in the West Bank, in Jerusalem, even you know Palestinians in 48, um, all coming together in an organic, uh, from below movement um, and uprising that raised the slogan of unity. That uh, that was unified by uh, this uh, this. Uh, uh, you know, this idea of rejecting the uh, Israel's practice of uh, uh, ethnic cleansing in broad daylight, because this is the central question for Palestinians, national existence and, uh, and the very physical, uh, you know, safety and well-being of, of Palestinians as people, as families, as people who live in their homes. So, in the lead up to what happened in you know in 2021, Palestinians saw in in, in on live TV, uh, on social media, these scenes of the you know the Israeli state backing those uh, you know settler organizations. Um, and uh, and working on expelling Palestinians from their homes in Sheikh Jarrah, and that that was incredibly triggering for Palestinians because it touches the core of why Palestinians, uh, you know, uh, uh, why there is a Palestine question to begin with. Uh, so so and then you know Jerusalem came, and I, and I talk about this in in my article about the Good March of Return. Uh, uh, Jerusalem, Al-Quds and, and the refugee issue uh, are very central to what defines the Palestinian struggle and, and plight for freedom and self-determination. So when these when these two factors are combined and when Palestinians feel assaulted uh, Jerusalem and Al-Aqsa mosque they have you know their of course you know religious significance and symbolic you know importance and of course, the refugee issue is the core issue of why uh, why Palestinians uh, are still, you know, fighting and and, and engaging in this like decades long struggle. So, so May twenty twenty one represented an unprecedented. I mean, I wouldn't say unprecedented, but like uh, 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 an incredible moment of unity. Uh, and and uh, and. It, it, it created this collective sense of like solidarity and uh, and and it showed Israel what Palestinians can achieve when they when they rise up in uprising uh, and when when uh, you know regard in defiance of Israel's walls and fences and it's, its uh sophisticated efforts to create physical intellectual and political fragmentation in, 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 in historic Palestine so uh, After the the ceasefire was signed in May, 2021, the Israeli military and political leadership uh, was was faced with a challenge. I mean, Palestinians, it's true that they, you know, Palestinians lost uh, a lot of, you know, people were killed, a lot of homes were destroyed and, uh, you know, uh, but Palestinians came out of that moment, uh, you know, with there, there was a collective sense of of triumph even if it was symbolic and that i think that represented a huge issue for for israel and for the israeli like uh, political and military leadership especially for someone like aviv kohavi who uh, who tested a lot of uh, theories and a lot of uh, tactics during the assault on gaza in may 2021 may 2021 that proved to have failed in, mm-hmm. in even achieving like uh, specific military goals for Israel. So, you know, and then like, you know, we, of course, everybody talked about uh, the, the elections, you know, the upcoming elections as context for this most recent operation.
0: The upcoming about, Israeli elections. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, the upcoming, you know, Lapid wanting to create this image that he's a strong man um, and uh, and assert himself as someone who's capable of you know like launching military attacks and killing Palestinians. So I think all these factors combined can help us understand what happened. But again, like you know in, in the in, in within the, bro- the broader context of decades of this. Right. This is just another you know moment of Israel Israeli violence against Palestinians. Uh, which still continues even after the ceasefire was signed.
0: Um, thank you for all of that. I actually want to ask you just to go back to this one piece on erasing May 2021. Mm-hmm. So if May 2021 was about Palestinian unity, so erasing that with this assault, what, what does that mean? And how does that, you didn't actually um, speak explicitly about Hamas's role just now uh, mm-hmm. in, in this most recent, escalation. So can will you talk about those two things about Ham, what the decisions Hamas made around uh this most recent Israel Israel's campaign and Islamic Jihad in Gaza and and then also the question of of unity and uh mm-hmm. Israel w- wanting to address this or or neutralize this this kind of unity.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah I think from the beginning um we heard um uh, reports coming out of the Israeli press or talking about how this operation aimed uh, at creating a wedge between Hamas and the Islamic Jihad. Um, And I, you know, I personally, like, I can't tell what (laughs) what were the considerations that the leadership of Hamas or the Islamic Jihad, you know, like uh, they they had in mind during that attack after and before. Uh, but I, but my personal assessment is that um, uh, the the decision by Hamas not to participate in this in, in this attack has to do with you know strategic and tactical like factors. On one hand, um, it was a surprise attack, so you know uh, uh, you know Hamas is not just a resistance group in in the Gaza Strip and in the rest of Palestine where it has presence. In the Gaza Strip, Hamas is also a govern, a government. It's responsible for uh, uh, for you know uh, uh, the, the, the public administration, the you know uh, ins- vital institutions that, uh, touch on people's survival and daily lives, and so on and so forth. I think, um, uh, and I, uh, I might be wrong, but that's my personal assessment. If Hamas chose to to get the, the Hamas's calculation for uh, for not getting involved in this round was that was to spare um, Gaza the the. Uh, the immense scale of destruction that would have befilled um, the Gaza Strip if Hamas joined. And and what does that mean? We saw that in May, 2021. We saw how Israel was targeting these large residential buildings that house dozens of families. And, uh, And we saw how Israel targeted factories, vital infrastructure, streets, hospitals, clinics, and so on and so forth. So I think Hamas' calculation was that you know they they're looking at the at the at the Palestinian you know street in Gaza they're looking at what people uh, you know what people you know how people are struggling with uh, the difficult economic situations this this, uh, this summer and they 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 know that people haven't recovered from from like last year's attack yet um, and for them you know uh, they they made an active decision not to, not to engage in this operation to also make sure that they don't give Israel the justification to expand the scale of the destruction and the scale of bombardment. And to, you know, at the same time uh, it, it, is, it is not possible for any, uh, you know, like group operating uh, from the Gaza Strip to uh, engage in, in, in that level of combat against Israel without uh, some sort of uh, consensus amongst the you know the active uh, you know resistance groups there. So this is my my personal assessment. Uh, it's really it's really difficult to tell. Um, but I also think that there was the, the Palestinian factions wanted to respond, but at the same time they also didn't want for this attack to uh, to last. Longer than it did because at the end of the day, like I said, economy is in a bad situation. People still haven't recovered from May twenty twenty one. Reconstruction hasn't even like you know started yet, or maybe it did, but in a slow pace. So you know, avoiding avoiding further bloodshed, I think that was the uh, central like factor here.
0: Great, thank you for that, and 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 for giving us this um, particular. Um, vision and window into what life in Gaza is like, and I, I actually want to ask you a little bit more about that in particular. Um, you you wrote in the past, you tweeted, and I'm gonna I'm gonna quote: "The mere existence of the Gaza Strip in its current shape is a violent crime. To trap 2.2 million people in a small strip of land with one of the world's highest population densities for demographic reasons, such a brutal sadist, sadistic." and inhumane reality." That's what you tweeted. And Gaza is about 100, 140 square miles, about the same size as Philadelphia or Detroit. And for the past 15 years, Israel has imposed a strict blockade, as you know, restricting trade and travel and everyday life. What do you want to, what do you want this audience that's listening now, what do you want them to know about life in Gaza outside of the the, the periodic aerial bombardments about how people live and survive there. Uh,
1: the Gaza Strip is uh, is a crowded place. It's uh, one of the areas with the highest population densities in, in the world. The current the current uh, population density rate is around thirteen thousand human beings per one square mile, and you know people talk about when I tweeted that uh, I received uh, you know a lot of backlash from people who were saying if you look at any uh, crowded city around the world uh, you will find uh, you know even higher population densities than in the Gaza Strip but what people don't realize is that the Gaza Strip is physically isolated from the rest of Palestine with uh, with a fence that recently became a wall, and usually urban centers with high population densities are connected to uh, you know a suburban slash rural context where you know the, the with economic, social, and political and institutional links. The Gaza Strip is an isolated enclave. It's not linked. Even to the, you know, if we think about the logic of the two-state solution, that uh, takes for granted that a future Palestinian state will be established on uh, on what is today the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. The Gaza Strip doesn't even have a you know geographic link with the West Bank. So, when when thinking about Gaza today and its future and its present, the question of uh, overcrowdedness is a pressing one. You have this large number of people who live in this very small territory with, uh, with very few resources to offer that can guarantee their physical well-being and their survival, especially in, a, in, a, in an immediate future where climate change is, is a major concern, water shortage is a major concern, uh, energy shortage is something that Palestinians in Gaza have experienced and, and know, but like things will continue to deteriorate. As the you know climate change worsens and so on and so forth. so so this is like you know a, a brief description of the current reality. But how did we get there? What made the Gaza Strip this small, uh, isolated enclave uh, that is cut off from the rest of historic Palestine and uh, and what, what kind of process led to the creation of this entity today we call the Gaza Strip? Well, the Gaza Strip, in its current shape and form, was a product of a man-made situation. In 1948, when the State of Israel was established on 78% of historic Palestine, uh, it, uh, it pushed uh, a lot of Palestinian communities uh from their cities, towns and villages expelled them and uh, and those Palestinians either ended up in neighboring Arab states or in parts of Palestine. Those Palestinians who lived in uh, in, in the within the boundaries of the pre-1948 Gaza district, which was one of mandate Palestine's largest, geographic, largest, largest districts geographically, those Palestinians were pushed to the Southwest towards Gaza. And, um, and you know, they, they sought refuge there. They became, they were, they, they were turned into refugees there. And, uh, and their homes, towns, villages, and cities that are adjacent to what is today the Gaza Strip were, were, were taken uh, by Israel. Not only in 1948, uh, Palestinians from the city of Al-Majdal uh, they, they stayed in their homes in 1948. and it wasn't until 1949, 1950 that Israel actually put them on buses and expelled them, uh, you know, to Gaza. Uh, so the Gaza Strip was basically the only a strip of land, uh, the only, chunk of land of Palestinian land that survived Israel's conquest in 1948. And when, when Palestinians were, con, you know, were you know, confined into this new territory, the, the idea was that you know, they were seeking refuge there. Uh, you know, we're talking about 70% of the population of the Gaza Strip are, have been and are and, uh, refugees from these towns and villages. Uh, and that you know, once the once the war is over, people will go home, because you know, for Palestinians, the experience of seeking refuge in neighboring neighboring towns and villages, when you know, when armies pass through Palestine or when Palestine is like the field for you know, battle or uh, or warfare between empires and you know, like conquering forces, th- that wasn't something new. In World War One, the entire population of Gaza City sought refuge in neighboring Palestinian villages and towns because uh, the Gaza city was, uh, you know, uh, a stage for uh, very violent uh, fighting between the invading British uh, forces and and the Ottoman forces that were stationed there. After the war, even though the city was destroyed, everybody returned home. So this wasn't something unprecedented. So, you know, you, you have in 1948, 200,000 Palestinians from uh, from areas around what is today Gaza, uh, sought refuge in what's become the Gaza Strip, in addition to 100,000 Palestinians who were already within that region. And after 1948, a fence was put and people were told there's no going home. No so, you know, now when, you know, I talked about the, Population density in Gaza, uh, right across the fence from the Gaza Strip, and I urge the listeners to open Google Maps and just, you know, take, you know, have a bird's view look on Gaza. Right across the fence from the Gaza Strip, the population density is from zero to 500 per one square mile. Uh, so you know, uh, people, 70% of the population of Gaza are refugees, and those people can see their towns and villages from the refugee camps. Palestinians from al Majdal can see their, their 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 city, so this context is very important. This context is very important. You know, people are being trapped in this in this uh, in this area just because of who they are, just because Israel wants to maintain its you know Jewish majority you know demographic considerations. So I think this context is very important when, when understanding Gaza, and and, and you know. It, and i really urge people to you know reflect about this and think about the consequences of what happened in 1948 and, and and its continuation into like today and how it affects the present reality
0: great thank you i mean thank you for that for being um, for giving us such a a, a rich and and and, and layered uh, response and and, and picture of Gaza and you have written and uh, we'll have links up on the website about this imperative of addressing the Nakba uh, when trying to understand present, present day Gaza and, and the importance of it for envisioning a different future. Um, and so we will have links to, to your writing up on the website so people can, can read more. Um, I want to ask you, um, now we're in 10 days, almost 10 days uh, since the latest uh, campaign, what what are the lessons to be learned from the realities and the violence in Gaza for Palestine more broadly? So, h- how do you think about Gaza within the framework of, of Palestinian liberation overall? And I, I'm asking I, I'm asking you, Jihad, how you think about Gaza within the framework of Palestinian liberation overall? And and you just you just talked a little bit about the Nakba, so I I want to ask you about to expand about that, um, but I also want to ask you to talk to us about how you want other people, uh, whether other Palestinians or international diplomats or human rights activists, uh, human rights advocates or or activists, to think and to talk about Gaza.
1: Thank you for this for this important question. I think since uh, since 1948. Uh, you know, I always argue that the Gaza Strip in its current shape and form is was the creation of the Nakba. Uh, therefore, uh, the, the, the logical thing for people there uh, if, who are reminded every day of, their, of how the Nakba created their misery, their concern is to undo the Nakba, to end the Nakba, and its continuation. And, and in that sense, you know, Palestinians in Gaza and elsewhere, of course, but in, in, you know, I'm talking specifically here about the Palestinian experience in Gaza, uh, they, the, the fact that they were confined in this very limited space and reminded of the massive loss of land in 1948 has been a motivating uh, the main, motivating force behind their understanding of the, the nature of the, the clash with Zionism and their struggle against the Israel as a, as a settler colonial project. So since 1948, Palestinians in Gaza have engaged in a, a series of, of struggles to emphasize that there can never be peace or a just resolution or any form of uh, uh, resolution for, you know, the, the Palestine question, without the right of return and the implementation of the right of return, and without addressing the injustices that were created in 1948. And this is the reality that, you know, uh, the international community doesn't want to consider. That's the reality that a lot of people who work in, you know, on uh, Palestine, Israel, in the diplomatic in diplomatic levels, don't want to consider. Uh, it's and this is the reality that you know uh, even uh, Palestinian, uh, you know, uh, entities such as the Palestinian Authority and uh, who are who have who are like, you know, linked to the international community uh, uh, consensus on how to address what they view as a conflict and have a recipe for its resolution, uh, you know, they, 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 they adopt this discourse uh, that you know, it's enough to address 1967, there is no need to go back to 1948 and they take what happened in 1948 for granted as if, you know, it was, people became concentrated in Gaza as refugees because, you know, of like uh, normal uh, push and pull factors, you know, people were just, you know, in the hundreds of thousands decided to just end up in Gaza and live in eight refugee camps in miserable conditions. Uh, That's why in the 1950s, uh, when there were schemes and plans to, you know, Eliminate the Palestinian refugee question, and uh, you know uh, uh, when uh, certain forces within the international community were considering resettlement plans for Palestinian refugees, uh, the Gaza Strip, uh, you know, rejected these efforts and emphasized that you know it, the, the the right of return as as a as a secret Palestinian. Uh, Right and as, as a sacred Palestinian uh, notion that is not open for negotiations, um, and and that and that and that sentiment continued and continues until the present day. Every day when you wake up in Gaza look to the east and see the fence that is separating you from your village and town, you know which is within like walking distance from from where you are in Gaza in and refugee camp, and look to the west and. You know, see the Mediterranean, Mediterranean Sea, and you know, you're reminded of how confined you are. You're reminded that you are confined in this in this limited space, in this limited geographic area, with limited resources, for political and demographic reasons, and that inspires people to to you know uh, approach the the their, the way they they think about. Their future, the way they think about their struggle, the way they think about uh, about the, the roads that need to be taken, in ways that are uh, clear and uh, and and visible and are not blurred. Um, and it's time to hear people out. It's time to consider what what the message coming out of Gaza is in in 2018 when the when Palestinians in Gaza you know organized uh, the protests near the fence during a time when the blockade was you know reached unbearable levels they did not call their protests the the great march to end the blockade they called it the great march of return because they know that the blockade is just a symptom uh, it's just another you know symptom of the continuation of that reality that was created in 1948 when the terms were set and the international community normalized those terms, that Palestinians should linger as refugees, should be forgotten, should you know, should be uh, treated as uh, you know, subhuman species, deprived of their rights, deprived of their you know dignity, in order for uh, a modern nation-state project to thrive and continue. and Palestinians in Gaza say no to this, and I think. There is something honorable about them saying no to this because no one wants to live in a world where demographic realities are uh, are imposed, you know, through the barrel of the gun, and <laughs> you know, and uh, and and you know, the the, the answer to to situations uh, like like Gaza is always violence and uh, or you know, like dehumanization of people who live there. So I think I think there's something very important that Gaza can offer us today in terms of, you know, thinking about how a group of people uh, were deprived of, of their rights and dignity and how the world normalized that and how it's it's a dangerous precedent. And the fact that people in Gaza say no and resist that is a very honorable thing that needs to be celebrated and, and not smeared and dehumanized.
0: Thank you for all of that. Um, I, w- I want to ask you one last question, um, again, about people in, people in Gaza, but about specific people in Gaza. So in May of 2021, you, you published a piece, a piece in the Washington Post uh, about, about Gaza, about that assault, about the ceasefire. ceasefire. Um, and you wrote then, you, you tweeted and you've actually pinned... I recommend everyone listening follow your Twitter feed, which is um, uh, really, really in, in informative and thought-provoking and, uh, and valuable. But you you pinned this tweet where on which you wrote that um, that you had written this essay in the Washington Post for your sister, and uh, and you wrote, and now I'm quoting again: your sister, who witnessed four wars in the last ten years, and who survived. So. Your sister is still in Gaza. The rest of your family is, is still in Gaza. Um, how are they? Uh, what have been the effects on them after these, these many years of, of war, uh, 10 of which you've watched from a distance? Um, and you've now spoken about a lot about this, this vision of, of what justice would look like uh, for people in Gaza. What would it look like for your family?
1: Uh. My family comes from uh, a city that is actually within the, the boundaries of what is today the Gaza Strip. It's called Deir al-Balah, uh, Arabic for the, the monastery of uh, of date palms or dates. Uh, it's a, you know, it used to be a small village famous for producing uh, dates and, uh, and wheat and barley and, you know, uh, it's also like a coastal town so you know people you know it's also famous for seafood and uh, and you know for them uh, thinking about the, the the family like the family's uh, history and uh, you know we we're people who are very connected to the land and, um, and and my father, uh, you know, he f- for him seeing Gaza in its current reality today as this crowded space, uh, you know, filled with concrete wherever wherever you look. Um, for him, it, it's 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 something that really disturbs him, uh, and because he he grew up and, and saw that. The transformation of, the radical transformation of this space uh, as a result of what happened in 1948, and and how Gaza has become this like you know like confined place where where people are just you know forced to to live and, under these conditions, um, so you know for them the their continuation of these of these attacks. Uh, is not cannot be separated from from the the re, the reality that they experience because uh, during the times of war or during these aggressions uh, things can the the things can you know be clear you're being bombed you, your turn might be next. Or you might survive. It's a 50-50 chance. And in Gaza, it's more than 50-50 chance because you know the odds are always higher that if your neighborhood is bombed, you may something bad might happen to you. But then, you know, the the real pain begins after you know the ceasefire is signed because you know spectacular violence ends. But the daily violence of the, the violence of daily life in Gaza continues. With you know, every aspect of their of their lives is a struggle. Electricity is a struggle. Power is a struggle. Water is a struggle. Securing food is a struggle. Um, there is no you know, think securing jobs for you know the the young ones who finish college is a struggle. Uh, the inability of parents to plan the f- the future of their kids, the inability of you know uh, of 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 people to to think about the the future in in, in the short and on the on the short and long long term. So I think you know my family, I con- they consider themselves you know from the lucky ones because. They have their home and they have their you know small business and they they try to um, to survive but but of course what what what's really like tragic is I have a I have a sibling who has like a, who has uh, a disability and for him you know like those times of of bombardment and explosions can be very scary so it's very difficult for my parents and, you know to uh, to create this sense of like you know safety while you have you know this these explosions outside of your house so <laughs> uh, it's I don't know I, I really don't know how to answer this question uh, how are they 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 have survived but to be honest you know the this this immense violence that has been put on on people in gaza has left them deeply wounded from from the inside i mean people are traumatized and they get re-traumatized over and over again and then you know like life just continues to be you know difficult and and gets worse so On one hand, you know, I look at my siblings and I celebrate that they learn and they, you know, go to school and they try to work and they always try to find hope in in a very hopeless situation. And at the same time, it's a shame that, you know, that someone like my sister, who's going to be 22 this year, um, had to experience the cast lid attack in 2008 when she was eight years old and the 2012 attack when she was 12 years old, the 2014 when she was 14 years old, the 2021 when she was 21 years old, and here, and now, and and just recently this year, she's 22, and about to be 22, and then she witnesses that too, and I, she posted on Instagram the day of the attack, you know, she was at her work, um, Gaza City, they were having an office party, and they were taking all these nice pictures, and then 30 minutes later, she's just, like, rushing to go home, uh, you know, fearing for her life. So, like, it, it is about time for my sister to stop counting her, you know, the years of her life and associating them with with, with wars and and with, you know, these bloody aggressions. Um, Palestinians in Gaza need to heal. They need to be heard. And they need to be free. And I think, you know, and if the world is unable to honor that, then we're in deep trouble because, because, you know, we will end up with many Gazas around the world. And perhaps the entire world will become a big Gaza where, you know, the poor and the uh, and, uh, unlucky are being punished and being, you know, violently uh, suppressed so that the very few can continue to enjoy their privileges and luxuries. But even that world, it's, it's not sustainable.
0: Jihad, thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you for sharing your experiences, um, for talking about your family, for sharing your analysis. Thank you for, for all of this. Um, I'm so grateful. And, uh, and I want to thank also our, our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for your time. And uh, please make sure to check out the FMEP website, www.fmep.org, for resources related to this podcast, for uh, the many links that we talked about posting, and also for lots of other rich content related to Palestine and to Israel. And please make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast so you stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Spotify. And you can also watch video versions of our podcasts, including this one on YouTube. And with that, I am Sarah Ann Minken signing off until the next episode of FMEP's Occupied Thoughts. Thank you so much and take good care.